This is another Soil Sense Field Check, where we find the right expert to answer your questions about anything related to farming, agronomy, and soil health. We invite you to participate at www.ndfieldcheck.com. Today's question comes from NDSU Extension Soil Health Specialist and really the driving force behind the Soil Sense podcast, Dr. Abby Wick. This is Abby Wick, NDSU Extension Soil Health Specialist. I'm always curious about the stories behind soil health and how the farmers choose to use these practices. And so I was wondering if someone could help answer a question on how they got started in soil health, practices they may have tried over the years, things that worked and didn't work, and what they're going to try in the future to keep these practices going on their farm. And here to share the story of his soil health journey is Kerry Swindler. Kerry farms near Mott, North Dakota, in the southwest part of the state. He started no-tilling in the early 1980s and became involved in the Mandak Zero-Till Association, which was a group of pioneering farmers interested in creating healthier soils in Manitoba and North Dakota. So our topsoil here, there's probably some of our topsoil in some of the fields we farm. It's gone. It's been gone for a long time. So when we started no-tilling in the early 80s, that was part of the challenge for us is try to get some organic matter back into the soil so that it would just stay where it belongs. You know, it wouldn't blow so easy. It wouldn't wash when we had a heavy rain, which we will on occasion get a heavy rain here. It's not that common. But if we do and the situation is wrong, there can be significant soil erosion. Originally, when this was native prairie, our topsoils here probably even then in a native sense, are only six to 12 inches thick on the top. So when a lot of this land has been farmed since, you know, the 30s and 40s, a lot of it was broke up then, conventionally farmed for many, many years, half black summer follow, half crop. That's what I grew up with. And back then, a successful farmer, if you got together with some farmers and had a cup of coffee in the morning or whatever, it was, the conversation went something like this. Well, how many times have you been over your summer follow this year? Meaning with a chisel plow or, a, you know, a field cultivator of some sort with sweeps on it to kill the weeds. And, well, I've been over mine five times. And the next guy would say, oh, man, I got two on you. I've already been over mine seven times. So here we have soils that were working. And I remember as a kid, if there was a few weeds poking up out there, you'd be out there working it. So there goes your soil moisture, there goes your soil organic matter, the wind blows, there goes your soil. If it rains hard, there goes your soil down the creek. It was a mess. And we were rapidly going backwards. As you heard, Kerry could clearly see the problems with the status quo at the time, but it's not always so easy to identify the solutions. I wondered what made Kerry think a better way of doing things was even possible. Well, it turns out he was introduced to some of these ideas from his uncle, who was one of the first to try no-till in the area. I climbed on the combine about this time of year, one year, probably in October. We were harvesting sunflowers at the time. We just started growing sunflowers in the late 70s. We were combining on a particular piece of ground that's uh, got a fairly steep hill in it, and it has a lot of these little ditches and rills coming off this big hill. And the soil erosion was becoming so fierce in there that we could barely cross those ditches with a John Deere 7700 combine with a six-row header combining sunflowers. 
And finally, I, I stopped my combine and I went over and I got on my dad's combine and I said, Dad, I said, we got to do something here or there's not going to be any land left for me to farm, much less my kids. And he, he, he could see it. I mean, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a revelation to him or anything. And he said, well, if we can find a drill that we can start no-tailing with, he said, I'm willing to give it a try because we had been watching my uncle for a couple of years dabble in it on and off. So that kind of started us down the path. And once it gained momentum, we made the choice in 1982 to sell out all of our cattle, all of our cattle equipment, all of our conventional farming equipment. And we switched. And I mean, it took a little while to transition. It took a year or two to transition into full no-till, but that's when we decided to do it. And it was a shock in a lot of ways, but it didn't take long to start seeing some of the benefits. I'm still seeing to this day subtle changes. They haven't been big. It's taken a long time, but it's happening. Now, you heard Kerry say there that it didn't take too long before he started to see these subtle changes, which gave him hope that things were working. And although he says the changes have always seemed subtle, I asked what he saw specifically that reassured him he was on the right path. Well, the first thing is there was a lot less wind erosion right out of the gate. You have to understand that what we were doing before was we had a black field out there pretty much the whole growing season through the winter, and then it wouldn't have a crop growing on it until probably April of the next year. So that ground was completely bare. It was exposed. And the way the wind blows in North Dakota, it's going to blow. So that's the first thing we saw. And it took, it didn't take too many years. And we started seeing a bump up in our organic matter of our soils. When we left conventional farming, we had some fields that were probably 0.8 to 1% organic matter. In other words, we had been mining the organic matter in those soils for quite a few years already. When we started into no-till, it was, I don't know, four or five years. We started seeing an increase in that organic matter. It was exciting to see. And then just by leaving the crop residue alone and getting the crop residue, one thing we had to learn how to do is do a good job that the no-till started behind the combine. It didn't start in the spring and started the fall before. If you didn't have that completely spread evenly behind the combine, that precipitated a whole new change in machinery that we had to go through. And the machine companies too, chaff spreaders on the combines, straw spreaders, straw choppers that would get it out to the full width of whatever header you had on the machine so that it would spread that material evenly on the soil. And if you did that right, it really helped protect it from heavy rains and wind. You just didn't see any wind erosion to speak of anymore. And just the excitement of being able to eliminate that year in there where you didn't produce anything. So about the mid-80s, we just eliminated summer fallow completely. There was no black summer fallow. There was no camp fallow. We started diversifying our rotation. Believe it or not, when we started, we were one-third winter wheat, one-third spring wheat, and one-third sunflowers to try and spread out our workload, to try to spread out our seeding. 
as time went on, we, we were looking for more crops. What can we add into the mix to diversify our system? We went to meetings for peas. Canola came along, and that started looking good. We had been playing around with that before it even really got interesting. And then corn, we just entered back in with that here probably. Oh, I dabbled a little bit with it in 93, but, you know, we really got more serious about it probably four or five years ago. So now we have a few fields of corn. This is not the corn belt out here. I think we would kind of be kidding ourselves if we thought it was, at least not yet, at least not in my opinion. So where does all of this go from here? Kerry told me he thinks the next evolution in soil health will be at the microscopic level in soil biology. We actually talked about that in our last field check segment. Now, Kerry has seen some great results in building soil organic matter on his farm over time. But after nearly 40 years, he still feels like there's more to be done. That's the frustration, Tim, that I'm in right now. It's leveled off. I can pull my soil samples from last year, and I'm probably running from 2.8 to up to almost 4. You know, the high threes up to 4 is pretty good out here. I think we can go one more look. I, I think there's more to go. Am I, I that's where I am. How, how do I get there? And I think cover crops could help, but I mean, you got to have water to get there too. <laughs> but you know, I, I'm happy with where we are to that point. I hesitate to even think what it would look like if we hadn't done this. It would be a disaster. Well, thank you very much to Kerry Swindler for sharing the story of his soil health journey. And also thanks to Dr. Abby Wick for the question and, of course, for everything she does to advance soil health. Also, special thanks to Mick Kerr for partnering with us on this Field Check series. This is the last installment here as we get ready to launch season three of the Soil Sense podcast. So make sure you're subscribed there on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is you like to listen to podcasts. Thanks so much to our sponsors who are making Field Check possible. The North Dakota Corn Council, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Soybean Council, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, and the North Dakota Barley Council. So head over to ndfieldcheck.com and leave us a voice message with your question today.